All right, well, that sound means we have started the show from some sort of official capacity. Uh, some lights are on now, which means it even looks as such. I'll have a seat and get on with it then. <laughs> oh, hello. Hello to my friend at home. Let's see. Hello to everybody else. Let's see. In uh, TV and Internet land, but very specifically to my friend at home. Um, my name is Jay Ryan. I will be your host this evening. Thank you for dialing us up here in the late night playset. Um, Mrs. Ryan is on assignment. And I am uh, preoccupied because I'm waiting for our guest to chime in here. Should be any second now. Uh, yep. Nope. Different thing. Um, <clears throat> but today is welcome back again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm out of sorts every time. There's so much stuff. Um, tonight is Thursday, August 25th, 2020. Uh, again, as you know, my name is Jay Ryan. Mrs. Ryan's on assignment. Uh, our guest this evening is somebody I'm happy about, and I hope that he's able to get here soon. Uh, it's uh, Jason Torchinsky from uh, Jalopnik, the writer from Jalopnik. And uh, also we know him from the bug documentary that Tori was uh, involved in uh, a few years ago. And uh, more recently, I should probably... Well, you know what? There's some stuff to get through uh, first. So maybe we'll just use this time to our advantage and uh, go from there. Let's see. Uh, We've got some East Coast feeds that we didn't get to last week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or Tuesday with Tori. Gosh darn it. I must be drunk. Sorry about that. <clears throat> this is one of those days where uh, Jay tries to fit in one last thing every single time. And right at 5-2, I was like, oh, well, I'll just reboot the router just to be sure. <laughs> we had plenty of bandwidth to do this show tonight. <laughs> and, of course, that led to like three or four other different problems. So what else is new? This technical guy... He knows what he's doing, but it's hard to do that and a show at the same time. Uh, anyway, where we left off with those guys, it was Brooks Track Day. They were dialing us in from Lime Rock Park, which was so, so awesome. Uh, so um, there was a couple of videos we got to, which were great. There was a couple that we haven't gotten to, so I'm going to play those now. One, uh, that doesn't matter. Here you go. Roll it, roll it out. East Coast feed. Roll it out. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah. See that? There's a few uh, MX-5s on here doing the runs, a bunch of Porsches. Uh, they've been running all morning. Hot laps, baby, hot laps. <laughs> yeah, hot laps, hot laps. Steak night, steak night. Reminds me. <laughs> I have so memory, so many memories with this guy that that none of that no one who ever watches this show will get. <laughs> it's just impossible. Uh, let's check it again. Danbury Chai, roll it out. East Coast Beat. Mr. Ryan, we are here at the infield of Lime Rock Park. And as you can see coming down here, we got our uh, good long straightaway. Everybody's going to be flying by in a sec. Probably hear them coming. There they go. Come on. Wow, look at that. So this is it. Quick little tour. There's your Lime Rock everything. There you go. Look at that. Boom. Run it. Run it. Good times. Track day. Did you have a good time today, babe? How was your event? Was it good? Look, I wore the right shirt for the event. Bam! There it is. Love you, Mr. Ryan. There we go. Very nice. Uh, and I looked down, and of course, it's because of that reboot I talked about before. I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't initiate the room. So our guy, our lovely guest, Jason Torchinsky, has been sitting here probably the whole time waiting Hi. for me. <laughs> That's okay. 
What's up, brother? How you doing, man? I'm okay. How about is your, you? Is your volume okay there? Can you hear me and everything? This will be the, the part we just kind of wing it. Wait a minute. Do we pause here? There we sure. go. Sure. We okay? No, I'm just asking if we. Oh no, no, we're good. If you are, I, I'm okay. just. Uh, I wanted to make sure that you could hear me, and then and we're uh, connected all well. Oh man, I love your T-shirt. Yeah, I'm a little uh, wet still because I took a shower, but other than that, I'm okay. <laughs> I was just starting to tell everybody how uh, this came together so quickly and sort of unexpectedly. Uh, I'm very uh, excited and happy that 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 I get to talk to you tonight. But <laughs> for anyone else, uh, you were a guest on the Smoking Tire this week. It actually aired today. And, uh, and oh, I didn't even feeling... realize that. Oh yeah, it's up. It's up, brother. Oh boy, it's I up. Should look at the good. comments. See how angry everybody is. <laughs> People are talking about it. <laughs> uh, but so it was one of those things where we sort of worked together the other day, and then uh, I did a show here on Tuesday with my co-host Tori Alonzo, who it turns out you know, mutual friends between bugs and Yugos yes. and probably all sorts of things. And I said, "Hey, yeah, Tori's great. great to have him here. We should have him here." And one thing led to another. We had a cancellation tonight. You were available. Here we are. Jason Torshinsky from uh, Jalopnik is uh, is here. And I wish you were actually here, but this will do it for now. Yeah, I understand. That's okay. <laughs> Says I'm Tori Alonzo. Yeah, that's not true. That's right. No, it is where there <laughs> that's who I am. That's me. <laughs> Uh, so what's happening, man? Thank you for being here. I appreciate your T-shirt. I appreciate that it's kind of late for you in the East. I don't know exactly where you're located, though. I'm in um, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I, I used I, to live in L.A. Uh, up until like 2015, 14, and then I moved out here. Hmm. What made you leave? Were you ahead um, of the game? <laughs> well... I uh, mostly was I have an old mom who is out here in North Carolina, and um, sorry about that. There you go. <laughs> that's okay. I just had a shift. Uh, yeah, I've got an old mom. I grew up. I grew up in Greensboro, so I grew up in North Carolina. Um, I actually moved out to L.A. You said this is sort of a, a comedy related podcast as well, right? Well, because that's my interest, and because of course I'm sitting here at the original David Letterman set and Dave's desk and chairs and stuff. So is it, that actually know, the original David Letterman set? Yeah, li- literally. I'm sitting. I'm sitting how, right how now talking you to you that? from David Letterman's desk. <laughs> how did you get that? Oh, it's a long story for another day, but <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be happy to tell you anytime. We, okay, uh, well, that's exciting. I remember. I remember the first episode of David Letterman I ever saw as a kid when I like got up late and saw it, and it was. Um, uh, it was. What was the night? It was something they talked about. Uh, it was like smelt. Oh no, it was like they. Ha- it was like some kind of special night where they were giving away some kind of meat. Perhaps, oh my gosh, canned hams? Fish. It wasn't canned hams. Though I've, I I have done an experiment with using canned hams as bumper guards. But that was well. They <laughs> spam actually does not work as well as a uh, the off-brand treat actually. It was denser and it actually absorbed impact way better than uh like uh, you know big names for the rich people. Spam did. <laughs> that was a while back in Jalopnik. What you're um, describing sounds like something that they would have uh, that they would have done on Letterman, like a Chris Elliott thing. Like you know, Dave, I can't oh, tell yeah. much difference. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it, oh yeah, yeah. That was the drink. That was the cooking oil. That was the cooking oil test, right? Totally. Then, yeah, I, yeah. No, I have a huge Chris Elliott fan. I always loved Chris Elliott. All right. Um, well, this. So now you're getting into what my DNA is. I grew up in a town that was where Letterman lived when he used to do this show, and it happens to be the same town where Chris Elliott lived. Uh, his whoa. kids went to my high school. The whole bit. 
Um, so that's sort of in my DNA because whenever Letterman through the 80s and 90s was talking about – before he got super, super famous when he was still talking about his private life and everything, he's talking about the guy at the gas station and the guy at the grocery store bag and his th- – all these different people and all these stories. It was all us. It was all our town. It was all the people wow. we knew. Um, so <laughs> I think that my thing started then and then uh, uh, I've had a, a lifelong affinity for comedy. I married a woman who was a professional comedy publicist. She was <laughs> VP of talent at a very high uh, publicity firm and worked almost exclusively with comedians. So uh, it's just sort of in the blood, even though I don't really think I'm good enough to ever be one or don't really ever want to be one. I sort of like this. That's where it all comes from. So, yes. See, that's funny because um, – so, yeah, the reason I ended up in L.A. in the first place is because I was uh, a stand-up and I had a sketch comedy group when I was um, uh, in college. And actually, I opened for George Carlin uh, a long time ago. Um, when they had like a contest at like uh, when I was going to school at UNC, actually here in Chapel Hill, um, they did like a big contest and I was doing some stand up and me and like three other, um, no, two other, two other uh, students got, you know, all, you know, there's a whole bunch of people and you know, we all performed and they picked three of us and I was one of them who got to open for George Carlin and it was great. He was super nice. Um, he was, you know, we got to talk to him a little bit backstage. I called him Slappy White because I thought that would be funny. You know, I feel old. <laughs> Funny white, and he was um he was great, and yeah, so I got to do a a, a set like I don't know like three or five minutes in front of massive massive crowd of all the people who came to see George Carlin. That uh, was a lot of fun. Crap. Yeah, that was great. A, a and then, lot of fun. Um, That's a life changing experience for a lot of people. Yeah. No, it was it was amazing. Um, and then yes, so I did uh, and then yeah, so I had a sketch group that was performing here, and then we moved out to L.A. This was all happening like right, like just before the internet really became a thing. So this was, cause I'm old as fuck. Um, okay. The, the, um, let's see, we, cause we were doing this in like the nineties and like, you know, mid to late nineties, but we were performing around LA and we were even, we even did a, some short films with um, Dan Harmon, you know, the guy who does uh, Rick and Morty. Sure. So he used to do a thing called channel one Oh one. Uh, where you'd make like these pilots. They were like these little TV show pilots that you would make. So our sketch group made a couple of these and then they would go to, um, you know, like people would watch them and then they vote on which ones would get picked up. Um, He actually lived right around the corner from me. I lived in the Los Feliz area in in, um, Los Angeles. And I remember like bringing uh, Dan the tape of our, because uh, we still had to physically hand him a tape. So the tape of one of the things that we shot and it was like three or four in the afternoon. And I clearly had just woken him up. This was a period where this dude was not doing a whole lot, but he was doing this and he was always really funny. Um, but I remember our two pilots that we made, one was, it was basically uh, like Knight Rider, but instead of Knight Rider being a Trans Am, if Knight Rider was a hyper-intelligent colostomy bag, and so it was like a fucking colostomy bag. And then there was it was also tied in with the fact that um, my character had a a wormhole, like a crazy scientist implanted a wormhole in his in his abdomen, in his gut, because it had to do it could only survive in these amino acids. So basically, he was shitting tomorrow's food before he ate it, and then the the talking colostomy bag would like read the data from tomorrow from the wormhole in his abdomen and together they would use that to fight crime and you know assuming that somehow evidence of the crime ended up in this guy's stool somehow this is very high concept yeah it was called shitbag from tomorrow and then we had um (laughs) i love that the pitch though is it's like knight rider (laughs) knight rider but a colostomy bag 
and the guy has a wormhole in his abdomen. And then we did another one that was about um, a guy who was gang raped by radioactive bears and he got special bear powers. They were both kind of vaguely superhero uh, related things. It was, uh, they, they were fun. I liked them. They, they didn't get picked up. I think they were just both too gross and weird. But Dan liked him. I remember he was super nice. So what was this? What was this program? Was that legitimately like I, you say it was something he started? But was it something that legitimately yeah. would like <laughs> had it been unanimously liked, it would have actually been picked up and like gone to series? Maybe uh, not by a network. It was just, it would have been picked up by the channel. It was called Channel One Hundred and One. And if they picked it up, oh, then they I would see. just have you make more episodes, and you would For just keep them. making episodes. For them until it was voted off, and it was on the web, and it was, um, and they would show it at a theater in LA at the same time as well. That actually sounds it was great fun, like especially it was a lot of fun. It's still online, like you can go films, absolutely, and you could go, you can see these things online. They're um, they're it's just if you just go to like channel101.com, you can even Google shitbag from tomorrow or violated by bears man, (laughs) and you can see the uh, the old pilot that we made. Yeah, I believe I have a shower scene in one of them, so you know. Warn your viewers. <laughs> but there was a lot of fun. I mean, doing comedy is fun. It's um, one thing that's kind of interesting about the modern era of like doing stuff on the internet, like doing videos, because I still do plenty of comedy adjacent stuff when I do, uh, when I shoot videos, because I do like the Jason Drive stuff where I drive weird cars. And I do this series that we kind of started doing because everybody's stuck at home of, um, uh, where I'm, you know, in my basement, where I just show off all the old. Mostly, it's just all the old computers and weird crap I have down here. Um, is that where you for are? That I was going to ask that the other day. Is yeah. this your basement? It looks like a, a tech central place. <laughs> yeah, this is my basement. This area behind me is mostly like uh, kind of workshop area, and then over like this direction where you can't really see is uh, where that's where I usually shoot like the Jason, like the Torchinsky Files episodes. That's where all the old computers and old like seventies and eighties game hardware is all over there. Uh, but I, so I get you know it's like so I still try to be funny because that's it just makes everything better. And I I was disappointed because this last episode. Of the Torchinsky files I shot, I shot the whole thing solely for one joke that I had. I had one joke. I was people occasionally asked for a tour of just everything I have down here in the uh, basement. And so I thought, okay, to me that felt like a little boring. I didn't necessarily want to do just a tour of all the hardware. So I did the tour, but on every screen I could possibly get it to display. And this included, and to display this, some of it, you know, I had modern computers. I could just display like an animated GIF. And some of these older machines actually had a program in basic, this display. But I put this warning, like an evacuation warning because of a gas leak. So it was like a big <laughs> flashing thing, like evacuate immediately. And then I never mentioned it in the episode. So basically <laughs> behind me in every screen that it could be was this flashing like red warning, like gas leak, evacuate immediately. And I never brought it up. And I thought that was a pretty good gag. And then like at the very end, I just did like a tiny hint. Like I just sniffed the air and looked around like what the hell's going on? And I thought that would, I thought people would like mention it or bring it up and almost nobody mentioned it at all. I was so disappointed. Like nobody even, they were big red warnings. Like why? See, to me, that is classic Letterman type stuff there. What you're describing. I mean, to me, that is like, if you're not in on the joke, you don't get it. You know what I have that you'd probably think is cool. Hold on. Let me say it. Cause I think it's on the shelf. Give me one second. Hold on. Okay. And I'll just linger on this shot like I did on the smoking iron Mac gave me crap for the other day. I wonder if this person would recognize. Hold on, it's it's here somewhere. I didn't. If I had known, I would have grabbed it out earlier. Oh shit! Where is it? Hold on. Uh, 
Take your time. Oh, I'm finding this enjoyable. Now we can pick apart your whole place there. I see. It looks like an old Apple IIe maybe. Oh, yeah. There's an Apple II Plus and an Apple IIc. And, um, oh, there the it is. Bank. The old book. The Merrill Marco Remember book. this book? This is, I think, a first or a – this is like one of the first editions of the Letterman book. And this thing oh, was like – I read this so many times as a kid. What, what year is this from? 85. Yeah. So this was, And this one even had like a – there was like an insert where they – oh, yeah, look. So they bungled the first printing, and so this one actually came with this thing that says – I don't know if you can read it. <clears throat> it says, like, corrected pages, 194, 197 to be inserted in badly bungled first printing. Do you know so, that they that's how they all came, and that was part of the joke? <laughs> was this part of the joke? I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. No, it really was. They were all that way. <laughs> well, that's even better. But I couldn't figure out – well, it doesn't seem like much of a joke because – it seems like they just fucked up because there's just no <laughs> caption. It's not like it's like they're doing anything super clever. It's just clearly they forgot the captions. I think you're probably have... I think you're probably right, but I remember that the first printing was like that and they just launched it. <laughs> oh, yeah, it clearly just did. But yeah, I'm assuming you have a copy of this somewhere. I do. I do on a shelf somewhere. I mean, that was they're on eBay for quite a bit of money now. Um Are they really? at least the last this time I the... looked a couple years ago. This is the one I had as a kid and I yeah, I think I it's so cool because inside it really has very little to do with the show. If anything, it's more like teaches you no. how they get to that type of humor. It's like there's it's more of a workbook. <laughs> I think they just let the writers just kind of go nuts and do whatever the hell they want. I, it's like some of this has stuff. That tune. Yeah, that's what it felt like. But yeah, you know, I, I really like that. But uh, what the hell? Are you doing? Yeah, awesome. so I so um, you genuinely are yeah. a Dave fan. Oh yeah, from way way back in the day, he was definitely an influence. I loved it. Like it was great, and so, um. How, how and why did you want to get into comedy then? I mean, it sounds like that's what you were doing. And by the way, you still kind of are, even though you're not a comedian. You are on the funny side of the in the world that you live. Yes, I, I still do try, and that's it's because that's still how I grew up. Well, like my main writing was always comedy writing. I did um, so I I had a comedy column at the student newspaper here at Chapel Hill, and actually even in high school, I, you know, I was a cartoonist also. I did political cartoons oh, wow. for um, newspapers, and um, I did like a strip cartoon in both college and high school, and then I wrote like a humor column. I wrote for The Onion for a long time. I was uh, an idea writer for The Onion's video arm, um, so like the, yeah, I basically would just come up with like lists of like 15 or 25 ideas like every week, and then some of them would get made into the ONN videos and some of them, you know, well, most probably wouldn't, but yeah. And it was, uh, so I always did a lot of comedy writing and that, um, actually the re actually it's funny. Cause the reason, <laughs> the reason Matt had me on the show the other day was because, well, this is convoluted. Okay. So, but it ties in. So Matt had me on the show the other day. Cause I saw he was talking to uh, a well-known author named Kevin Cruz on Twitter and I had to message Matt saying, you know, I actually know Kevin because back when I was in college, I had this humor column and at some point I was writing about, you know, I was writing about whatever, but at one point this very um, this kind of really right-wing guy was on student government and he uh, got a hold of the gay and lesbian organization's membership list and was basically blackmailing them. Like he was going to release the list of members and if unless they withdrew their funding, okay. So I'll, this will all he's come gonna out them basically. 
He's going to out them. And this was in like the early 90s when it was still not easy. I mean, it's never easy, but it was still it was still not easy. It was even less easy than now. And it was just a shitty thing to do. And it just struck me as a shitty thing to do. So in one yeah. of my columns, I just called this guy out. I said, like, this is super shitty. And I challenged him to a fight in the last day of classes in the middle of campus in this place. <laughs> and the game became a bit because... I wasn't going to debate him. What am I going to do? What am I going to debate? Like, there's like a like there's an argument to be made for his side. It was like, no, fuck that. I, I just want to fight. So I said, like, meet me here, and um, we'll we'll have this wrestling match. And I was I was a wrestler in college, so I said we'll do it like Greco Roman rules wrestling, whatever. So uh, Kevin, the guy that Matt was talking to, and who's now a big shot author, he's the guy I got because I knew him a little bit in college, and he was also a writer. Uh, I had him MC and be referee for this wrestling match and he came out there with like a, an amp and a microphone and did all that stuff so that's how that tied in and then uh so we had our wrestling match like he showed up which i have no idea why he showed up and there was like a huge crowd of people there and you know he's of course he was bigger than me because everybody's bigger than me but i won because there's no way i wasn't gonna win the crowd was not in this dude's side and uh but yeah kevin was the guy who was emceeing all that so it was because I decided I wanted to tell Matt about that because he was talking to this guy and I had this weird tie in. That's when Matt said, Hey, you should come on the show. So that's, that's very really funny. So okay. even, so everything about this whole week of, <laughs> of podcasting has been convoluted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. That's yeah. quiet. Uh, well, there's, I would love to talk more about your comedy, like, uh, uh, and then we'll have to sleep cars as well. And then, um, sure, one of the things I love about Tori is his love for Volkswagens and, and especially oh, yeah. that bug documentary. I would love to talk about that because he told sure. me, we'll get to it in a few minutes, but your stolen bug story. I want to talk about that too. So, oh um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. Comedy wise, wrapping it up, like, were you doing stand up at the clubs here in Los Angeles? Were you, yeah. were you, I mean, I know you said you had an improv troupe, like, were you going up doing stand up too? Yes. And we were sketch. We were not improv. We did oh, not believe excuse me. Improv. That is a big difference. I forgive me. We, we, we felt the audience shouldn't have to be doing any work. We would handle it all. No. So we did, we were a sketch group and we performed at clubs all around. And then I did stand up at like, um, I don't even know how many of these places are still around, but you know, but I did like the comedy store and uh, the improv in those places. And sure. you know, sometimes all the when you were rooms. starting, you'd have to go. Yeah. Like super late at night, you'd have to go. And then you'd like a Wayans brother would show up and do a tight, 89 minutes set of crap that they were just working through and you'd have to wait and it was miserable but eventually i got to the point where they started to invite me to places like the ice house in pasadena or one of those places great room and you yeah, just yeah awesome. you get invited and you do them so i was doing that um you know a fair amount like i guess a few times a month uh but it's it's tough i mean if you want to be a comic you really have to be like a hundred percent in just a comic and i was doing i think just too many other things at the time and i wasn't on you know as dedicated as i should have been to like really make that work but i don't really regret anything it was a lot of fun uh but it's um you know it's tricky i mean it's not easy you got to really be willing to live <laughs> uh lean uh, for a while or have a or have a day job that's extremely right. flexible to make that kind of thing work i just think of today you know in the last i mean everything's kind of dead right now obviously but prior to the previous six months um, the last five years or so has been such a comedy boom in Los Angeles, the likes of which I haven't seen in, in my generation. I moved out here in 99 and I sort of missed yeah. the last one. There was still stuff going on. There's always stuff going on, but like the big booms, um, there was that one in the eighties and then, uh, you know, with, where everybody had a show, there was A&E at the improv and, uh, all the, all the different shows, oh, yeah, sure. punchline live and comic strip live and all those. 
Um, uh, and then it seemed like um, there was another one in the early 90s. I sort of feel like it was during the Dave and Jay time, you know, when that shit was going on. And then I just kind of missed it. What's going on nowadays is is really, well, previous to six months ago, uh, is so nuts that I think that what you think of as just a little patch on your, a merit badge on your sleeve of, of life or whatever is like a big stinking deal to people these days. For anybody just to go up at the comedy store is huge nowadays. I don't, it was, I mean, they had plenty of open mic things that you'd get started in. And then, you know, like, uh, <laughs> I mean, everybody had a deal, I guess, with Mitzi Shore. Is she still alive? I can't remember if she just died recently she's, or whatever. She's but gone. Yeah, she she passed away. She's last gone. Year. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I feel like every everybody I knew kind of had some story about having to deal with her at some point. Oh, yeah. And did, uh, did you have any Mitzi stories? Uh, not other than, you know, she like being in crowds and like, or like while you're doing stand up and her yelling about how she knows funny. She was a, a difficult woman. In <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's um, funny. I think a lot of people she, came up, uh, they didn't mind telling, you know, it's it's like Carson or whatever. She was one of those people that kind of helped make you. So if you had yeah. a Mitzi story, even if it was bad, it meant you were close enough. You were close enough that you right. even got yeah. in the room with Mitzi. Sort of <laughs> she was deal. definitely in the room, both when I was doing stand-up and when we uh, had our sketch group. She, I think she liked us okay. I think she said, I'm sure, I think she said something favorable at some point because she had us back a few times, but oh. she, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I would call her a, you know, she wasn't, you know, a, a huge asset to whatever I was doing because I never made it that big. So it didn't really matter. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. That, so you still have a love for it and you're you're applying that that element of your own art into your work, I assume. Sure. I mean, you know, like when I try to do funny stuff with cars now and that I like that even better in a way because I love cars and it's just kind of nice to have like um, you just have a hook, an angle. You have like something to kind of anchor everything to and gives you a kind of a fun niche. And, you know, I, I just love it and because I've always loved cars anyway. And this just lets me and, you know, what Jalopnik has let me do is really anything I want, which is fantastic. And it's amazing. Like the idea of like any site that thinks that like, I never have to run a story idea by an editor anymore with thank God. Um, because if I had to some stories, I write no editor in their right mind would ever, ever green light it. Like just like yesterday I was writing about an incredibly insignificant, ridiculous detail on old air cooled VWs, this weird little spotlight they had. I read this lived, article this you know, morning. I yeah. read this this morning. It's a great article. Highly recommended. Nobody, nobody would, if I try to pitch that article, nobody, no editor would say, yes, absolutely. People You're need You're the only know. guy who cares, Jason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the thing is, people <laughs> like reading about that stuff. They actually like reading about it. If you're enthusiastic, they feel enthusiastic about it. And, you know, so you can't second guess what people are going to be into. The fact that I can write about taillights as often as I do is something that shouldn't happen. In a rational world, you'd think there's no way people would like it. But these articles do well. People somehow give a shit. And if you're excited about it, you can make anything uh, interesting. Yes. And that's a that's a wonderful gift that Jalopnik uh, affords me is this freedom to just explore whatever. Like I'll write about steam cars from the 1830s or whatever like stuff that has zero relevance to today like nobody should give a shit but people people actually do and i think that's just a, a wonderful wonderful thing 
I think you're right on the mark. I I, I love the uh, there's a story that uh, Larry David talks about. You know when he and Jerry used to uh, uh, pitch ideas for the Seinfeld show. Like some of the stuff that came out of Larry's head, whether it actually happened to him or not, was so ridiculously outrageous that nobody would ever put it on TV. But right. because those guys were who they were, whatever he threw it out, he goes, "Yeah, let's do it." And yeah, and you get good stuff that way. Like you can, yes. it's so easy to overthink what the audience actually wants. Because it's it's just not that clear. And if you try to write what you always assume you think the audience wants, you're just going to end up kind of boring. You're going to be writing about cars you think have this kind of mass appeal and you know straightforward stuff. And people are going to miss out on all the really weird niche stuff. And that's the whole point of the internet is all the niche weirdos can come together and find other niche weirdos and get excited about niche weird shit. That's what I loved about the internet when it started. It's a little crazier yeah. these days, but that's what I loved. Nerds unite, right? Exactly. That's that's all it really is. And car nerds are, you know, some of the best, fussiest, most weirdly single-mindedly focused kind of nerds there are. And 100%. you know, if you can play do that, then then that's that's what makes like our site work well. And what's good about uh, the way Jalopnik is at this point is that we've got uh, people who are nerdy like that in very different niches. David Tracy, for example, for like Jeeps and things like that. And then we've got people, you know, just every, you know, everybody kind of has their own little focus of nerddom, and that, that works out really well. Uh, you mentioned a couple times that uh, you've been into cars for a long, long time, your whole life. Why? We'll switch now. We'll get, get into full cars, get out of comedy. Okay. But what, what, what's, what's the deal? I'm similar. I'm, most car guys I know are similar. What, what's the deal? What was it for you? I always, I always really liked cars, uh, but, and it, but it was, it was Beatles that first really drew me in hard. My dad had a, a 68 Beetle, an auto stick, when I was a kid growing up. And that car was very important to me. That was for like the first car that I really got interested in and really excited about. And it was because it was different than so many other cars on the road. Like when I was when I was a kid in like the 70s and 80s, the Beetle you know, just was dramatically different from most of the other things out there. It was, you know, rounder. It was rear engined. It was air cooled. It didn't sound like other cars. It didn't look like other cars. It didn't drive like other cars. It just felt different. And I always thought it was kind of like a good gateway drug into other weird, obscure cars. And I think that's why my focus now is so much into like kind of weirder and more obscure cars because the Beetle was that gateway. And then, you know, pre the internet, you had to like go to the library or wherever to look up stuff about cars. So we would, um, so like going into the library, I would look up things about beetles. And then in like the background of a picture of a beetle in Europe, you'd see something that looked almost like a beetle, but it wasn't quite it. And then you later you'd find out it was, oh, that's like a Fiat 500 or a Renault 4 CV. Ah. And you'd learn about there's other cars kind of like beetles out in the rest of the world. And then you'd go down these various rabbit holes and then you'd learn about Tatras and then everything was shot and you were lost. And it was wonderful. You're describing but the now, thrill of the hunt for me, just to, the quest for information when we were young. For me, it was DeLorean and whatever else was big at the time but i did the exact same stuff sure. you're talking about where you scoured both it was the library or for me like walden books like go to the mall you know oh just yeah hit walden, the, hit the yeah. B. dalton or walden books go to their reference section this was before barnes and noble um and just yeah. go to town and the magazine reference section of course you know all of the all of the car mags right and you know sometimes and i got clever sometimes like i wanted to find out more about these weird cars i was seeing but it was so hard to find books like you know in, in greensboro north carolina there's not a bunch of books about Tatras or Skodas in the public library, but they had tr- travel books about Prague or other oh cities God. like that. 
So I remember getting a, the first Tatra I saw was in a travel book about Prague and it was like in a cityscape and there was like this crazy ass giant car with a dorsal fin and all these fins and louvers <laughs> in the back. And I was like, holy shit, what is that? And so I check out that book and I'm like combing through, there's like a cathedral and I'm just looking at this weird Skoda behind the cathedral in the back because that's what I was really interested in. But the travel books of like Europe and Asia were like, that's how you found the cars you couldn't find in car books in you know, in your little town or wherever the hell you are. Oh gosh, it's so great to know that we're all the same down, down, especially back at that age. Like our DNA, oh, yeah. just kind of gets shared. <laughs> yeah. Uh, were you Absolutely. always? I mean, for, and I hope you don't. T- I mean, this, I'm saying this in a positive manner, but have you always been like a, a nerd kind of guy? Were you always into weird oh, stuff yeah. that your friends weren't? Absolutely. Yeah, no question. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. Oh. But not necessarily all the traditional nerd stuff. Although I loved like space travel and things like that. But I liked, um, I always, I, I love details and I love like diagrams and I love things like that. So, you know, I'd, um, you know, instead of like, you know, as much as I love like the science fiction stuff, I also love like diagrams of like a Gemini capsule or something like that. So yeah. I get super excited oh, about that. And, the, so, and all the forbidden stuff was so exciting to me. Like, I remember I had one National Geographic magazine that talked about the Soviet space program. And I read that thing over and over and over again because their ships looked nothing like ours. Like a Soyuz looks like this crazy bug-like thing. It's green and it's got a ball in the front and this other part. But there were so few pictures of them that you could see pre-internet and pre-wherever except this one national geographic had like a great like multi-page spread of all this stuff and i memorized everything i learned i even taught myself how to read a little bit of cyrillic just so i could read what was on the side of the rockets you could read like proton or soyuz or molinia or whatever the hell was on the side of the rockets and i saw like the the early mirror and the solute stations like all that stuff i i loved i have that issue somewhere but yeah that was that was a big deal for me and then now, of course, you can find all this stuff. But then that stuff was really hard to come by. And when you found a reference, it was valuable and precious. It was uh, an amazing thing. I feel like you're good at uh, – are you good at finding cars and finding f- weird information and stuff like that? Like are you a good info hunter? Good, good researcher? Yeah, well, yeah. I guess that's is the a lot of what that. I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's a, a lot of what I do is digging up information on, on weird cars and things like that. So I, I have gotten pretty decent at that. Well, that's good and impressive, but the way you write, it doesn't, it almost uh, comes across that you're writing about things. Oh, this guy knows about all these quirky things and he's just writing about the things he knows about because he knows about these quirky things. And I, I, I hope you take that complimentary as well. It doesn't seem like, oh, okay. I researched, yeah, I, I I researched the little map light thing for the controls <laughs> and the instrument panel of a beetle, you know? <laughs> that one I did kind of know, but I, I had to go back and look up the the regulation that caused that thing to be. Cause one thing with like old Beatles, you know, if they did a change, it was usually because they had to like in some way, cause that car, they kept it, you know, it's basically a 1938 design that they kept building until 2003 with just little changes here and there. So if they change something like you, like the way I remember like U S regulations for things, like when did, when did we legally have to have side marker lights? For example, I always know that stuff because I just look at the year the Beatles started to have them in America and I know, That's okay, so by, yeah, but like 1970, 1970, they started to require lights. And then by 71, they require lights and reflectors. And you could see all these little changes and backup lights. I know how to come in 67 because that's when VW introduced them. Because they're they're not going to do these things. Like for the Beetle, they weren't going to do them ahead of time. It was like when it was required, then they would put it on. And, you know, that was it. But this that was, yeah, that was about all that too. <laughs> 
Uh, all right, well, yeah. we're on Beatles, uh, and, and we're mm-hmm. skipping around a lot. Hopefully, you don't mind. Uh, I'm conscious of your time here. Uh, speaking about Beatles, while you were living here in Los Angeles, you've got a Beatles story. <laughs> yes. Okay. And, and so, maybe, yeah, so. maybe if I understand the story correctly, it may have even led you to Jalopnik. Um, I was already at Jalopnik when this happened. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, but and I did have a car. And take my embellishment out of it and, and take no, it away. Okay. It was, I did get to Jalopnik because I had a Reliant Scimitar, this weird British car, and Jalopnik did a story about that, which is how I kind of got introduced to the site. But the Beetle story. Okay, so I had a Beetle. I had this Beetle since uh, my first car was a Beetle. I bought when I was 16. Uh, I had a little oh, job the at coolest. the bike shop selling computers. So I bought a 68 Beetle. Uh, you know, I'm a kid in high school, barely learning to drive, and that got eventually wrecked and so i pulled the engine out of it and i put it in a 71 super and i had that through high school and then i wrecked that i flew it actually oh. 84 feet in the wreck um oh. yeah it was a loft for 84 There's feet luckily there. it landed back on the wheels yeah that's all that's like a good portion of the wright brothers first flight was 84 <laughs> feet so that was it was um i was just i was going a gravel road going too fast oversteered gear shift broke off in my hand we hit a sapling that kind of like flipped the car in the air it was across the street from like a golf course and when the car landed it was a huge crowd of people from the golf course looking at all the what they assumed were dead guys but no it was me and two friends and we were all fine actually uh and the engine was still good so i pulled that engine and it had it sitting in my shed for a while and then i found this 73 beetle it was originally an auto stick uh, and that was when I was 18. So I've got this 73 Beetle. And um, so I've had this car since I was 18. And I, you know, so I had it, you know, when I lived out here in Chapel the first time. And then when I moved out to L.A. And, you know, this car has been with me a long, long time. It was a very important car to me. And then while I was in, in L.A., it actually. So I lived on Franklin Avenue in Los Feliz. And I had it. I had it like a, a one lane driveway uh at my house at the time. So sometimes to get cars out, you'd have to like shuffle them around. There were sometimes we'd just park in front of the house. If it was just easier. So this was one of the times I was parked in front of the house and I came out one, like I came out one day, like parked it and I came out and it wasn't there. And I was like trying to figure out what the hell happened. I realized, Holy shit, my car got stolen. And I was of course very, very upset. Um, it even had like a low tire. I was supposed to go get more tire. I think I was going out to take it to get more tires, but, um, it was gone. And I was, you know, beside myself. I was like losing a pet. I just felt awful. I've had this car since I was 18. I'd had it like 20 some odd years. It was just an important thing to me. The car and, is one um, thing, but the heart, that sentimentality. Oh, this, yeah. It was just so, because I'd been, it'd been through so much with me. And it's, you know, it was like, it was just a big part in like every bit of my life. Um, also, we so weirdos tend to like attract to things and attach to things weirdly. I don't know if you're, if you're the same as me. No, but, like, I absolutely do. Yeah. I, Definitely. Yeah. I, I definitely attract to objects and things. And so I had a lot invested in this car of just myself and it was close to losing a pet is how it felt. Even I know it's an animate object, but mm-hmm. it still felt like that. So I was, so I wrote all these articles on Jalopnik, uh, put, you know, put up signs and stuff, called the police, all that kind of thing. Um, and in the comments of one of these articles I wrote, I remember it was like, it was like a weekend. It was like a Sunday and I had written another article because I'd gotten no help from the cops. Because in L.A., uh, finding a stolen car is – the cops don't do a whole hell of a lot, really. Um, I think of uh, Big Lebowski. <laughs> like, yeah, we yeah. got him working in shifts. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> and they – and I, even I had better – because I was working for Jalopnik, I had some better connections than other people did. And, you know, I was able to get, like, I knew, like, Leno's garage guy who put the word out to some cops. So there were actually cops sort of looking for it, at least, which usually doesn't even happen. But uh, in the comments of one of these articles, somebody posted a picture of my car. And it was 
you know, it was a little messed up. You know, a lot of it was stripped up and down. Like the headlights were gone. I could tell by the way it was sitting. The engine was gone. Roof rack. I had like a nice factory roof rack was gone, but it was still mostly there. And I was like, holy shit, where's my car? But the person who put the pictures up, they didn't put any text with the pictures and none of the pictures gave any actual information about where the car was. There's no street signs or anything. And you got was a ransom letter. It's what it felt like. And a lot of the people in the comments were like, clearly that's what's going on here. Uh, so I, it was it was maddening because it was like it's somewhere. I could tell by looking at it, it's probably somewhere East LA, but where? This is and every I was kidnapping losing. movie. I mean, look, she's still alive, but she's not doing too good. Right, but wh- where the hell is it? And I knew based like it was partially stripped. It, if it's going to stay there any longer, it's going to get destroyed. I, like there's like a ticking clock here too. So it's in the comments. I'm like freaking out. And then another commenter, a guy in his name, his commenter name was SF Mike because he lived in uh, San Francisco. Uh, Just by looking at the pictures and using Google Earth and just guessing. So there was like a mountain and like a turquoise house and just using like that amount of information and the general socioeconomic look and some good guesses. Within a half hour, he found the intersection on Google Maps that the car was in and it was even to the point where like the screenshot he gave had some of the cars that were still parked behind like in the background of where my the bug was like in the google map shot so it was definitely it and so i had i had it was like in like vernon or something like out there and so i i, I so i got i get the information i find the intersection i drive out there immediately i remember my the editor at the time was matt hardigan he was trying to talk me out of going there because uh because it could be you know, dangerous like, It'll be dangerous. He said, sure. have the cops do it. I asked the cops about it. And they said, if we get it, we're going to impound it no matter what. And you can get it back, but it's going to cost you like a grand. And there's a process. And I'm like, what the fuck? No. So I just drove out there, found the car, um, and then had it towed back home and then, you know, put it back together, put in a new engine in it and all that stuff. So it was just sitting so, on the yeah. street somewhere. It's not like uh, it's not like it was in a, a, a garage that somebody uh, somebody probably left it, parked it. Right. And then yeah. they stripped so it. There actually, on the street. There's actually a trail of gas because when they dropped the end, en- when they pulled the engine out of it, they did it pretty quickly and sloppily. And they just like cut the fuel line. So there was like a drippy fuel line. And I traced back like where the fuel dripped um, all the way around a corner to like. And if you looked at that map, like in Google Maps, you could see there's like one of those. There was like four or five possible places that looked chop shoppy enough that could the have been back door there. type of thing. Yeah, and if you looked in like in the overhead maps, you could see a bunch of other cars like in there. So somewhere in that area, it was probably where it was taken, and they pulled the. And it was just way too much heat on it, so they dumped it on the corner. <laughs> I don't know. I think they just wanted it for the engine and the roof rack and some other pieces like that. But I don't understand why they took the headlights. They were just regular sealed beam headlights that cost literally like $6 at like an auto zone. I feel like they would have lost money in the effort to just take those things out. It makes no sense at all. I agree. This is one of those things where like, you know, the murderer takes the money out of the wallet to make it look like a, a, a robbery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, well, well, like, why would you take, like, of all the things you could take from the car, like, why the headlights? And, you know, there was, like, some sentimental other things inside there that luckily stayed. Like, my dad passed a couple years before, and I had an old Polaroid of my dad that I I had magneted on my glove box. And luckily, all that stuff was still there. So, I Again, got all the sentimentality really stuff. Lucky. Exactly, yeah. All of that. And so, I was very lucky about all that so i still have it so yeah i put it back together you know i had a new engine built with twin carbs because i figured why not give it a little little bit of an upgrade if and you have uh, to do yeah, it. I still have it to this day yeah yeah if you're gonna put a big new engine in 
you know, so I still kept it like a 1600 dual port, but I put twin Cadron carbs in there. Although now it's, it's I have to tune it. I got to figure out how to synchronize the carbs I have. It's running really shitty now. I got to take care of that, but it's still got it. And it's still here in the driveway. And yeah. I'm very Do you notice a that. difference in how the car runs uh, East coast, West coast, be it gas or climate um, or anything? Other than it's, it's well, it's wetter out here. So um, it's wetter and it does things like snow. It's just more weather to deal with. And with a carbureted car, things like humidity and stuff do affect it. So I have noticed yeah. some of that. Like things are, uh, you know, California is just a good place for old cars. Like it, it, things just, you know, even though they don't, they don't rust, they dry rot, but things just kind of work a little better. So it's a little trickier keeping an old car, I think, running really well in a place where the weather varies as much as it does here. The yeah, steadiness I'm born and raised in Connecticut, so I noticed a difference out here. That's why I was asking. Yeah. Also, I've brought cars more than the performance car, you know, uh, high premium gasoline uh, cars back and forth. But a car that was like raised on 93 octane and new computers, like direct injection, new computer shit. And then it comes out here and all it gets is 91. You get like knock sensor oh, yeah. warnings and, and, and all the different things. I was, I mean, that's modern cars. Um, yeah. I just didn't know if, uh, I mean, the carburation, like you said, probably is a big part of it. Carbs are finicky. I mean, they're not, you know, it's, it's not like the kind of refinement of like a, you know, the octane doesn't matter at all for this thing. And you're basically <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's not, you know, it's not going to worry about is that. Is it flammable? So, Good. The, Put it in. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the carbs are finicky and things like weather do affect them and that kind of thing. And you get condensation and, you know, so there's a little things like that, but nothing, nothing really too bad. And, um, yeah, so it's, you know, but, and so the guy who found it, um, I was glad I was able to pay him back a little bit because I did this, uh, Audi hypermiling challenge and I won this hypermiling challenge where I had to drive from like somewhere in Arizona all the way to like San Diego on one tank of diesel. Um, and so like me and, uh, and, uh, um, uh, Neil Pollock, a, a writer who's also an auto journalist, we, we did it together and we, uh, we won that thing. So the prize was, uh, like a track day in an, an Audi R8, which was pretty fun. And the track was in, it was like the Sonoma raceway, which is just outside Ooh. of San Francisco. So I uh, called out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Cause I guess Sears point. Yeah. No. Um, so I, I called Audi and I had them uh, transfer that to the guy who found the car. So I was able to get him to, so he was able to go out and do it. He actually had Sweet. like the full, uh, yeah, track day in the RA and said had a good time and all that stuff. So I was I was really happy I was able to get that and uh, try to uh, pay him back a little bit because you know yeah. I can't ever fully pay him back, but at least it, it was something. Now we're talking about the guy who actually did all the sleuthing, not the guy who posted yeah. the ambiguous photo. Right? No, that guy. That guy, <laughs> that guy actually he did show up while I was waiting by the car because and he like apologized. He said he like took the pictures and was like on his way to work and just put them up on his phone and didn't even think about it until he like got off work and then looked back at his phone and was like, "Oh, holy shit, they think I, this was like some ransom thing or something." So he went by where it was and I happened to see him, so he like apologized for not to, you know saying where it was. But I think either way, it still there. got you there. It still got me there. Exactly. That was the breadcrumb, so yeah. I owed, I owed that dude a lot too. But I, oh my God. the guy who was not even in the same city and figured it out, he he definitely earned that that track day. No question. Um, can we take a quick break real quick? Uh, I have a yep. TBT video. We do, It's Thursday, and on Thursdays we play TBT videos, especially lately when we're all stuck in the house and everything. So we play a video from, uh, in this case, I think it's from September of this year. It was from Luftgekult Weekend. Uh, here in Los Angeles, and um, let's see, TBT is what we call it, and let me see if I actually put it in the system like I think I did, because <laughs> I know that I was not so great getting to you before. 
There we go. It should be okay. All right. We need to produce it. This is where Zach comes in, and uh, I need a Zach. Anyway, roll it. <laughs> some quiet. Good morning. We're here at Newcomb's. Thank you for thank you for sticking with us for that. That's not at all the video I thought it would be, <laughs> but it was at least a Lipkicol video. <laughs> yeah, but there was a lot of hunting in there. Senior. So I want to say, if you if you run into somebody you see on the street that isn't wearing a mask but should be for whatever reason, local laws, etc., uh, you could say to them, "Hey, man, need a mask? Shophansiger.com." something you could say. I would also like to say quite uh, very quickly that uh, that video, along with the rest of this evening's show, is brought to you by St. Clair Insurance. And uh, uh, being Jay Ryan, I would like to remind you that uh, they say all that separates men and boys is the coverage for their toys. St. Clair Insurance has coverage for your toys. Coverageforyourtoys.com. St. Clair Insurance. And now, back to Jason Torchinsky. <laughs> Thank you so much, buddy. <laughs> You're so patient. No problem. No problem at all. <laughs> What kind of ship show is this over here? Pushing buttons. He doesn't even know what they do. Um, That's what we all do. That's half my job. <laughs> uh, you and Tori also have something else in common, I think. Do you have a Yugo also? 
I do have a Yugo. Exactly. Yes. Do you touring, want to talk about it? No, I love talking about the Yugo. The Yugo is actually my highest horsepower car I have right now for the cars that I drive. My wife has like a real car, but I've like, for mine, that 67 horsepower Yugo is my highest horsepower machine. So that's 67 that's my fast horsepower. Because I have the fuel injected one. So it's oh. uh, a B. What, yeah. So what year Tori, is it? How does it work? I mean, are they all the same? I don't know that much about them. I just know Tori had a couple nope. of them and he still has one. Yeah, so Tor, Tori's got a, some beautiful ones. Tori, although he just sold one. I talked to him today. He just sold one of them. Um, so he bought a really nice one and then he got a really cool one that was driven from people in Yugoslavia all the way to America or former Yugoslavia, I guess. Um, and it's actually the, I think over there, it's called a Zastava Corral. So the one he has is all uh, Corral badged, which is just makes it really cool. And it's in beautiful shape, but they made a few versions. They made, um, there was like a 45 horsepower one, a 55 horsepower one. Both of those were carbureted. And then the fuel injected ones like mine go with a ravenous 67 horsepower. Uh, mine was actually a gift. It was, um, uh, we used to have a guy who wrote for us. He also, he's big on YouTube. Also, Freddie Hernandez, you know, Freddie, uh, Taverish, he calls himself. So he yeah, used course. to do a lot of stuff with us. And he, um, he bought the car as like a joke and gave it to Mike Balaban, who didn't have a car at the time and lived in New York. And then Balaban had it for a while till he and his wife had a kid. And his wife was so against that child ever any entering that car in any context, he had to get rid of it. So safety, he gave I'm it assuming to me. safety. Oh yeah, I think for safety. Yeah, you know, so he gave it to me, who he knows is much more safety lax, and um, so I was delighted to have it because I really like it. Though it's, um, I like it because it's so it gets such a bad rap. It's so unloved, but really, is it's it? just not. It's not that bad. It's like a joke card to a lot of people. It is a joke were- card, but I think of it as a, being a lovable joke card. To me, the Yugo and the Lake car are two that I will always love. They were kind oh, of the yeah, same well, generation. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about the Yugo, it was like like everybody like because it always shows up on like these hacky worst car ever lists that like <laughs> yeah, you right. well it did used to melt <laughs> in the in the sun, right? But they're it's just not that bad. For one thing, it's an extremely conventional, rational design for the time. It's a very straightforward transverse front wheel drive hatchback. Like it's a you know it's basically a Fiat design. It, there's nothing. There's nothing foolish about it. It's a very rational design, good use of space. And, you know, the build quality wasn't always that great, but it wasn't really that terrible. And if you're really going to bitch about it, this thing sold new for $39.95, under four grand new. And like a Chevette was in like the like high fours, low fives at the time. Average car price around that era was like in the sixes, like 6,000 something. So this thing was about like around half of what you were going to pay for a car. And that's, that's an amazing thing. Like that's impressive. Actually, actually that thing behind me right there, that's a, that's a Yugo ad, right? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Like, I feel like I remember that ad. Yeah. This ad was good because this was like showing like the whole point. Of I Yugo. totally remember that like, ad. People's cars like model T beetle yes. and then Yugo, like in 3990, like, that's just dirt cheap. And it's just not that terrible. Like it's actually, it's fun. I, I love it. weighs nothing. It's fun to just like throw around. So like, you can just, you know, just ring it out and throw it around like a little go-kart. It's just a fun little car. And it it's probably, um, probably barely sips gas, right? Yeah, no, I think it gets pretty, it's it very good gas. I'm sure I get well, like definitely over 30 in the city. I would think at least like it's, Oh, maybe they even say, does it actually say what the, 
But it's, I mean, mm. does it have a tiny tank and everything? I, th- I, I think of those compact imports oh, I think that it's came like in. It's only 25 in the city, 31 on the highway. And I think it's it's probably got like a 10-gallon tank is my guess. Yeah, that's I have right. an Nissan POW that's got, I think it's only got an 8-gallon tank, but that POW gets like 40-something in the city. Is that the but one that we uh, talked about uh, on the smoking tire the other day? Is that yeah, the one Matt yeah, the was little, asking? That thing is the cool. <laughs> I love that car. <laughs> that was the that was the absolute coolest. I had never seen that before. And looking at the pictures, oh, yeah, and the no, graphics, it's so cool. Oh, it's yeah. There's so, it's it's right hand drive. A little 987 cc motor making like 53 horsepower. It but it's just such a charming little car. And it's just a joy to drive, and it works so damn well. It does like hardly ever gives me any trouble. I love that thing. And, it, you know, like I said, I put a lawnmower in that thing. But the Yugo, the Yugo is just, you know, it's it's crap, but it's honest. It's honest crap. Like, you understand why it's kind of crappy, but it's just not that crappy. It's just, it it did its job extremely well. And I think they get a bad rap because they were so cheap, they were effectively disposable. You know, mm. so nobody, like, who's putting time and effort into a Yugo when they had it? These things were just driven hard, beaten to the ground, and when something went wrong, People just thought, leave it there. Yeah, so like (laughs) no one cared, but really, they they were pretty damn good. And um, Tori's found he found like a cache of Yugo parts, like from an old dealership, and just bought a huge amount of stuff. And it was because of him. So mine was having alternator trouble, and so I was able. I traded some. uh, I traded these rare uh, Volkswagen Thing like hinge covers, these plastic hinge covers that are hard to find to Tori, and he gave me uh, an alternator for the Yugo. Um, and it, which was that fantastic. It was like a, a pretty fair trade. Box. I think it was pretty fair. I think actually he gave me the alternator first just because he's a nice guy. And then I happened to find these. And so I gave him those. So it was a kind of a staggered trade, but whatever. We, everybody came out ahead is what I'm saying. I love the it was thing. Like uh, I love the, th- Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah. No, I love the thing. I don't know what uh, those little covers that you're talking about are, but I do oh. know how a car nerd geeks out when you find the little, the one little thing, whatever the little trinket is, and and yeah, if I one mean, just shows up in the mail. That's pretty cool. Well, for things, these so things are. I, I love them also, and I love it because they're so basic and rugged and crude. But they and so they didn't have a lot in the way of like refinement, but they had some things, and usually those things just ended up gone because they were like fussy plastic things or leather things or whatever to make something smoother or look better. And in a car like a thing, that's the kind of thing that a lazy owner is just going to, you know, if you have to put it on or off back on and off, they just go away. So this is a piece that when the roof is folded down, all the fabric is folded, but you see the metal, uh, you know, bows of the the roof. And so you see them all folded up. Right. So these are special plastic fitted covers that are designed to cover those up. They like snap on with this little like strap and they just make it look a little smoother and cleaner and that kind of thing. And they're really hard to find. Yeah. People would, you know, get rid of them. So they're just hard to find. And I happened to, I happened to come across a set of them that I had just had sitting and I don't have a thing. So, you know, I just had them. Oh, it worked out really well. And Tori's, um, Tori's, uh, the, the, so the alternator he sent me was like a new inbox, like or new old stock Yugo alternator. And I have to be the last guy to be putting, in America at least, to putting like a in the Yugo branded box alternator on a Yugo. Literally, uh, yeah, taking it apart. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, and it was wild. so beautiful and shiny. Yeah, and so it, it was great. And now the Yugo runs great, actually. It runs fantastic. It starts right up. It's just a fun car to whip around in. I really like it. But yeah, um, I drove that thing back uh, like without like from New York to North Carolina, um, 
when I got it. Like, so I flew up to North Car- to New York for like a, a work thing we were doing at Jalopnik. And then, you know, so I just was going to drive home. So Balban gave me the keys. And so without doing much in this car at all, just trusting that it'll somehow make it, it drove all the way there and it did it. And I remember a guy pulled up next to me in like an Escalade while I was in New Jersey or somewhere. And he was a guy, he was a guy from the former Yugoslavia who knew about Yugos. He was super excited to see it. And I was t- he was telling me he had a couple of them and all this stuff. And then I said, yeah, I'm taking this to, to North Carolina. And the look on his face was just one of such like, of just like, like dismay and like horror. And the way he looked at me after that was just like, oh, you, you poor pathetic bastard. You are, you have no idea. You're, you're just, like, it was not a confidence inspiring look at all. He just looked like. Like he was talking to a dead man, like, oh, you're doomed. But the only thing that went wrong is uh, the wipers quit working uh, at some point in like Virginia and it was raining. So I just got a bunch of rain except like a Walmart and just slathered the windshield. It was fine. Just keep it moving. Just keep it moving. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, everything's vibrate like crazy in the highway speeds and whatever, but it it was totally fine. That's awesome. uh yeah. about time to start wrapping it up here uh i just you know your shirt and then uh you also mentioned the gemini program before and everything are you yeah. like a space nerd too a little bit you said sci-fi oh, yeah, before yeah a huge space nerd and like i said my real love was always for the soviet stuff because it was yeah. so much the it was like the forbidden stuff that you really could never hear about but they're you know they you know, they, they had so many achievements. And then after the moon landings, I feel like most people kind of thought, ah, uh, they're kind of done. They're not really doing anything. But these guys were real pioneers for space stations. You know, they yeah. had the, the Soyuz, like the first real station. And there's still one of my favorite space missions of all time is, um, okay, so there was a brief period. This had to be in like the late 80s where they had Soyuz 7, which was a station. And they had and they just launched the Mir. And they were going to go to the crew. Yeah, so they sent a crew up to the original Mir core module to like set it up, but they still had the Soyuz station, which hadn't been used in a while. So this is the only time in history a crew has gone from one space station to another. So they space basically walk. set up the movement, and then they went to the Soyuz, which was in a different orbit, and the Soyuz oh. was kind of out of control, and it was it had no power, and everything was frozen, and so they had to like do all these complicated things to like it was tumbling out of control, and they had to match it with the Soyuz and dock, and it was so cold inside, their thermometers weren't reading enough, and I remember reading that they had to figure out how cold it was by spitting on the wall and timing how long it took to freeze. To freeze. <laughs> So they like all the water tanks and they were frozen solids, but they eventually got it all working again. And wow. so they got the station back up and running and then it rained like condensation down on them. Like, but it was amazing that it actually worked. And then they went back to the mirror to finish their original mission and then came home. But like, that's never been done. That before. is Nobody unbelievable. You just described yeah. the plot of the best space movie that I haven't seen. They, I, think, I can't remember if they made a movie out of this, but they, they absolutely should. Because but you know that, that matching the velocities and all that shit that. sounds like every space movie of you know, gravity, oh, even yeah. all that stuff. And it's it's it, you know none of this was easy. And the, you know and these you know, the Soyuzes were pretty cramped and uncomfortable in a lot of ways. And like doing all this stuff was you know was not easy. So they did a lot of really interesting things. And their space hardware, I always just loved the it has this look about it, this strange like communist technology look where they have this weird green metal and everything is exactly what you mean it's a little darker it's a little alien yeah it just it feels very other and it but it's appealing in a weird way and it's kind of homely and crude but it still does the the right word 
but it yeah, yeah but it's doc true, brown's but time machine never, it was not made in a factory <laughs> no yeah and it's, it's so I, I love all that stuff a lot like just the look of the interiors of all of their stuff and it just there's just something about it that always just draws me in so i've always love, really really I, I love that you're fascinated with it. I love that it's basically two different ways of of looking at or attacking the same problem. It's like, oh, well, this is what this is what you know these people thought yeah. was important for achieving this task. This is what these people saw that was important for achieving this task. Sometimes those things align, but I find the interest in where they don't align, and that sounds like you also. And that's yeah, and that's exactly the case. Like when it comes to like the Apollo, uh, you know, our our spacecraft that we took to the moon and stuff, and the Soyuz, there's a there's some fascinating different design decisions, like. The Apollo had a much bigger engine. It was very American in that way. It was kind of a hot yeah, rod. Yeah. But the um, but the living space was actually less because the Americans decided, let's just have one capsule, and then we'll make that capsule be the living space and everything, and that'll be the part that comes back to Earth. So in the Soyuz, they said, well, why – for all the stuff that we have to do while we're in orbit, like the bathrooms and like just general living area – if we try to build all that into a capsule that returns, then we have to make it so the parachutes can carry it and the heat shield can cover it and everything gets heavier and heavier. So the Soyuz weighs like half of what the Apollo weighs. And yet where the it has almost double the amount of habitable volume because the Soyuz made a smaller return capsule that was much smaller than this than the Apollo. So it was cramped to be in there, but you really only have to be in there during when you're going up and when you're re-entering. And then they made this spherical orbital module on the front that had like the bathroom and like seating and a window and a docking module. So you got all this extra space that you could use. And it also could work like an airlock. Like in the Apollo, if you wanted to open the hatch, you had to get rid of all the air. Everybody had to put on spacesuits and then, you know, you have to repressurize it. But in the Soyuz, they just go in the descent module, only have to evacuate the orbital module and it works like an airlock. It was just a different solution. And then it could be lighter because they didn't have to heat shield the orbital module or make it so the parachutes could carry it. It's just a really good solution. It sounds and, so um, wild. It, yeah, it's it's just great, and because you're exactly right, it's this the idea of like let's let's take the same problem, and then you see these two wildly different approaches, two different teams, yeah, yeah, to this problem, and you know this idea, it's not like the Americans weren't aware of this concept that the Soviets eventually went with. In fact, there was a a GE proposal for Apollo that used basically the same idea. Let's like divide the space up. One's for return only basically, one's for while they're in orbit. And then It's amazing. This is literally why I was bringing this up because I am in the middle of watching a miniseries that I watched when it was new 20 years ago, but uh From the Earth to the Moon. Do you remember mm -hmm. that series? Uh HBO do, with Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know that series. Fantastic Great. quality, fantastic production design, fantastic storytelling. And uh, it's just, if you're into this stuff, there's so much content to just nerd out over because they seem oh, to yeah. be pretty darn authentic through the storytelling. And certainly with the real places, they really go to JPL and the different, you know, whatever it was called back then. Um, oh, yeah. Did you ever see that series? Are you into that type I of... Remember uh, that I remember that series very well. And I remember, yeah, because they do go in a lot of detail. I think they cover, like the fascinating thing about the Apollo is the onboard computer that they developed for it, which, you know, it seems ridiculously, you know, like, you know, meager to us now, but was incredible for the time. Like a computer that could do all that it did was like unheard of. And I think even the, you know, the use of those types of like the seven segment displays, like the eight that becomes all the numbers. One yeah, of the, the first times displays, that really, yeah. Yeah, it was like used on there in the display, what they call the disky, the little display device. And crazy about it is all the memory in that thing 
was what they call it was like old style core memory, which was like these tiny little round donut shaped magnets on wires. And they actually had like weavers and seamstresses, these women who would like weave this memory together. And it, it, it felt it was more like textile manufacturing. And it was just this it was just another way of doing it. That they did back then. And you would just use these magnets to like polarize a one or a zero on these things. But it was like this rope. So memory. It was basically an abacus computer. Kind of. It was, it's just an amazing system that worked. And then the woman who programmed it all, like there was a woman who like came up with the whole operating system and everything married, but she was, um, she was like one of the first real hardcore programmers before people even really knew what, what programming would she be one of the oh gosh sorry you cut off there are you still there software what oh yeah i'm still here okay but it was uh i don't know it was it was fascinating and you know all that uh, the hidden figures movie too with uh, all the women behind the story yeah Yeah, there's so many oh and one one last thing i should mention about this and apollo stuff is uh so I just when we did like it was like an anniversary of the moon landings i guess last year in 2019 and um I wanted to do like something big for it. And so I was looking into uh, the fecal containment bags that they used to use on the Apollo. Be- like, because that's mid- your like, move. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, Shit bag. <laughs> in space was always difficult. And so I was curious about them. And I found out that uh, uh, Maytag actually made them. So I called up Maytag and I'd seen them in museums. And I asked, as so I called up Maytag, I was trying to see if they had any old stock ones of these left over that they were, and they were looking into it until they heard, until I told them stupidly that my plan was I was going to try to use it because I had read all these things about how horrible it was to use these fecal bags. So they, they, they never got back to me. So what I did is I reverse engineered one and I made <laughs> as close to the original specs as I could a fecal containment bag. It was the right size and it had, had like this kind of adhesive ring on it, like this thing. And um, so I tried it out. And, you know, there's all these pictures online of like a guy like holding it up to his like plaid pants butt. And it used to be, it was, you had a, it had a thumb impression in it. So you, cause you were supposed to, after you took a dump in it, you had to put in these like antibacterial pellets and like mush it around. It just, the whole oh, process, sure. all the astronauts talked about how awful it was. They hated sure. it. So I tried it you in my shower. You compost it basically somehow. Yeah, you just have to like push it up and it was, it just seemed gross. So I built one and I put it on and I actually shat in it in my shower and tried it and it is terrible. And then the <laughs> other thing I realized that I'm, that never comes up in these things is when, I don't know if I was using a stronger adhesive than they used or what, but when I took it off in the article, I mentioned giving myself a, a bagel shaped Brazilian because it just yanked all of the random hairs that one has in that zone. <laughs> off and it was horrible and painful like you know, all your dignity is going right out your asshole when you're shitting in a bag anyway and then just to have that afterwards was uh brutal Absolutely try doing brutal. it in space yeah exactly and i still had gravity work with me I that's what i mean at least we have gravity for that yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh jason Tor- jason torchinski you are awesome man um you're a oh, delight thanks. to talk to and i feel like we could go on and on for days <laughs> easy no problem um don't be a stranger if you ever want to uh you know do this again or if you ever want to be here when you're in los angeles another time see the letterman stuff i'd love to have you yeah well one thing i do want to mention before i go is please yeah and and if there's anything to plug too yeah i got a book so i wrote this book about autonomous cars robot take the wheel 
Uh, it's a pretty good take on autonomous cars. It's not too technical. I tried to keep it funny. Look, there's even, let's see if I can find some. There's illustrations I drew in it. Let me find an illustration. So look, there, look, look, right Take here. your time because I heard your illustrations are great from Matt Farah. So got pictures, uh, but it, look, if you're interested in why all the Tesla stands get so mad at me all the time, uh, all of it's here in this book. And uh, so please pick up a copy if you can. Do you think the future is uh, electric car? I think there definitely will be electric cars. They're pretty damn good. Um, you know, like they. Battery technology is definitely getting better. Electric drivetrains, I mean, there's so few moving parts in them. I know, like it's, it's, hard, it's hard, hard to fight it. Yeah, and they're they're good. They're quick. They're I mean, there's not a lot of reason not to. As battery batteries were always the limiting factor, and they're getting better. I still think the charging infrastructure isn't there, and it still takes a while. And I'd still like to see battery swapping become a thing, but um, I think they're definitely here to stay. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think right. if, if we play our cards right, it could open a lot of opportunity for more custom cars. Because, like, the the standard, like, uh, skateboard drivetrain that they use with, like, batteries and electric motor all integrated into, like, a skateboard, that's basically like the old Beetle Pan. And if we play our, if we did it right, we could have a whole kit car industry that was just popping bodies on these, you know, skateboards. And you could have all kinds of fun, interesting cars. So it doesn't have to be bad. I love internal combustion engines. I love how many hoops you have to jump through to make a shaft spin. I mean, that's the fundamental difference. An electric motor just spins a shaft. That's it. We have to, you know, like ICE engines, you're moving valves and moving pistons and flapping things oh, around. Just before to do you the get same to the transmission. So, yeah. Yeah. And you have so much other crap. And that's why combustion engines can have so much character. But at the same time, that's also why an electric motor really does make a lot of sense. So I think we're going to have more of them. I don't think it means... There's just going to be different ways to hop up cars and modify your car and things like yeah. that. It's just going to be a different way to do it. But um, nice. I don't think we should uh, worry too much about the, you know, the the fun part of cars, the soul of cars going away just because they're electric. Cause I think we got to everything on the card here, man. Hot damn. I know. Uh, let's see. To find out what uh, Jason Torchinsky thinks about autonomous cars by his book and to find out what he thinks about everything else, all the weird, quirky things in the world, check out Jalopnik. Yes, Anything exactly else? right. You're not on Instagram, right? Are you on any I have social Instagram. media? I don't, I, don't, uh, I, don't publicize, I don't do as much on it, but I'm trying to. I have an Instagram, which I think is also Jason Torch. And then on Twitter, Jason Torchinsky. I, I use Twitter a little more. God knows why. I just do. Um, okay. And so, yeah, you can find me there and on Jalopnik. And yeah, and I write, you know, I, I try to write like three articles a day. So there's always going to be something cranking out. So look for it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate your time. appreciate your work and I appreciate you as a human. Thanks for being Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. You, you have fun and take care. And don't think I didn't notice the Letterman style blue cards. That's pretty cool too. Oh, you betcha. The mugs, the cards, the pencils, we did it all. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Talk to you soon. Have fun. Oh, he is the best. That was so fun. All right. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here. We went long because, uh, because we did. Sorry about that. Uh, sorry, not sorry. I kind of got a little bit of buzz off that guy. He's really good, really fun. And it's, it's kind of nice to nerd out, like let your guard down and nerd out a little bit. Like Sometimes you go places and you're like, oh, you can't show your full nerd. Um, that's all we have. That's all we have for tonight. Uh, tomorrow's Friday. We're at Breakfast Club. Um, the weekend is unwritten. There's all sorts of stuff. Oh, shout out to PECLA. They've got the, the movie thing going on. Uh, it's Le Mans tonight. And um, all sorts of stuff throughout the weekend. I can't remember exactly what. Bad Boys 2, I know. and uh, Oh, and Days of Thunder tomorrow, of course. Absolutely. So we recommend checking that out. And uh, we love you at home. I love you so much. Uh, it's getting weirder. And we're trying to be more positive. So I hope you're trying to do the same. 
And uh, if you need anything, let me know. I don't know. Give me a call. <laughs> Maybe you can't call me. But uh, if there's ever anything that the Ryans can do for you, by all means, send us a message. Because um, sometimes maybe what might be hard for you or for whatever you're going through might seem um, like a lot. Um, sometimes it might not be a, a lot for somebody else to make a phone call. Or maybe somebody knows who you need to know or whatever it is going on in your situation. So I guess really long and short of it is don't be afraid to reach out to people, ourselves included. Love you so much. Love uh, one another. Uh, until next time, this is Jay Ryan reminding you, they say all that separates men and boys is the coverage for their toys. St. Clair Insurance. Coverage for your toys. Coverage for your toys.com. St. Clair Insurance. Shout out to Jeff St. Clair. We love you, everybody. See you next time. 